0: and welcome. Buckle up for a new episode of Beyond the Green Line, the only podcast hooking you up for a virtual coffee date with some of the leading change makers, industry experts and everyday activists in environmental and agricultural sciences. So pop in your headphones, go for a walk and get ready for inspiration, ideas, insights and real life stories beyond the green line we balance along. again, team. Welcome back to the next episode of Beyond the Green Line, brought to you by the team at Moss Environmental. I'm Bronwyn Brennan, and joining us today, we have Dr. Rebecca Thistlethwaite. Beck and I met during our undergrads at the University of Sydney, and I'm hoping today that Beck will talk us through how a Sydney girl from the beaches ended up working as a plant breeder extraordinaire, the excitements and challenges facing Australian agriculture, and some of her favourite parts of the job. Beck is based in Northwest New South Wales in Narrabri, which is about two hours west of Tamworth, where the Moss team are based. And Beck works at the University of Sydney Plant Breeding Institute. Hello, Beck. Hello. Thanks for having me. Oh, anytime, literally <laughs> anytime. <laughs> Beck, from memory, you went straight from our honours year to your PhD. How did you find the country move and how did you find studying straight for so many years?
1: Yeah, it was quite a big shock, actually. I I didn't actually go straight from uni to my PhD. I ended up doing some work up in Armidale for a commercial company. So I always knew I wanted to be in research and I ended up just doing a little bit of managing trials for a commercial company. And it was just a really good way for me to get out and about and, and see sort of a little bit more of what agriculture had to offer and what the industry could offer me. And then I was lucky enough to have a couple of great opportunities through mentors that I'd met through university and they were able to give me the opportunity to start the PhD. So yeah, it was a it was a tricky decision to make because you really have to love what you do when you start a PhD because it's a long haul and it's not for everyone. And I totally get why people don't always succeed. And I was one of those ones that was definitely not going to. I'd actually started doing the PhD and, and was going back and forth to Sydney. And if I hadn't have moved to Narrabri, I definitely would have quit my PhD. So yeah, moving to where I was having to do all the research and immersing myself in everything was definitely the way to go. And then, yeah, I just made sure that I tried to get it done as quickly as I could. That was the whole aim for me. I just, I needed to move on and I was, I had the pressure behind me to be able to just get it done, get it out the way and then move into a a higher role once I'd finished my PhD. So yeah, I was really lucky in the sense that I, I was able to get that opportunity, not
0: not long after uni finished. That's awesome. How did you find that country move? I'm a big advocate for people leaving the cities, and I think that the regions that we have in Australia, and particularly in New South Wales, are fantastic. How did you find it? Yeah, actually,
1: it was really hard to begin with. I missed the city a lot, and I missed the convenience. And when I moved to Armidale, like Armidale and, and uh, Narrabri are very different different towns, completely, and, and the really people that are in them are very different too. Yeah, so. Very much so. Yeah. So Armidale, for instance, has a lot more university students. So I found Mm. it a bit hard when I was working to get involved with with them. But then when I moved to Narrabri, it's um, full of young professionals. So I was able to meet a lot of people. And and it was funny because when you start to get to know people around town, you sort of don't worry too much about going out for dinner and the actual physicality of, of going mm. somewhere. You, you go to people's places and you enjoy it, enjoy it just as much. And I think that was a really big thing for me because when I lived in the city, you'd never really go to people's places. You'd just mm. go out for dinner and you'd go out mm. to, you know, wherever it was always such a big thing. But here in, in Narrabri, it's, it's more about the people and, you know, that strong interaction with each other rather than big city lights and things like that. Yeah. So yeah, I really, I really enjoy it now. I'd didn't It was a big shock at the start, but yeah, now I've settled yeah. in, I, I really enjoy it.
0: <laughs> yeah, we think the regions are fantastic. Oh, it's great, yeah. Moving on a little bit, most climate models indicate that our agricultural regions are all going to get hotter and drier in the coming years. Can you please tell us a bit more about your work breeding for heat tolerance in our food crops?
1: Yeah, of course. So, yeah, heat tolerance is a huge area of research that we need to continue to look into just because for our future generations we're going to need to be able to support them both domestically and internationally and with some of the work that we do you know if we're not starting this now then we're not going to secure things for the future and having that sustainable way of being able to produce food is absolutely crucial so what we do here at plant breeding institute is specifically looking at wheat and we've started to look more into chickpeas and faba beans and other commercial crops but trying to genetically develop them so that they're more superior when it comes to heat tolerance and what we've been doing within the research has been to it's been a multinational multi-partnered approach we've had uh, many years of research now which has just accumulated into a bigger project which I'm really grateful to the grains research and development corporation for funding And that is going to look more at developing methods that are going to speed up the process to be able to develop these types of of plants quicker and be able to make sure that that what they provide to the grower is sustainable in the long term so we want something that isn't going to fall over in the next you know five or six or ten years or whatever we want something that's going to be really sustainable and then also that to be able to use those genetics and the genetic models and the different breeding methods to make sure that we've, we've got those for the future as well and we can keep moving forward with whatever the climate does throw at us in the future so it's a big it's a big project and I'm really excited to get back into it in
0: April. <laughs> That is really, really exciting. So talk us through the work that goes into the development of a new wheat variety. Yeah, sure. It takes
1: normally about 10 years to be able to produce a new line of wheat and plant breeders and commercial breeding companies are what do the majority of that work at the moment. And the stuff that we do within Sydney Uni is to look at pre-breeding, so just that step before what the breeders would actually take the genetic material and develop a new line into. So we bring material from all over the world and we screen them in really large research trials. So they're mostly, we have a big training population, which we call in Narrabri, and then we have these sort of little baby populations across Australia. And we're able to predict using that training population here in Narrabri, what is going to happen at those other trial sites and based on the algorithms that we've developed. And it sounds a bit complicated, but being able to use those or being able to provide those algorithms to plant breeders is able to speed up the process and it can cut the process down by two to five years, depending on what we're doing. So that's a huge, huge impact on the industry financially, as well as to all the growers out there that are struggling year to year with heat at particular times, especially at times during flowering and grain filling. And we often don't think too much about, um, well, We do, but we've started to look more at it in the last few years. But rising nighttime temperatures, we always seem to look at daytimes, but we're not always looking at nighttimes. And that's one of the things that if if those heat-tolerant lines can't get a a rest during the night, then we're not going to be able to have them sustainable in the future. So, yeah, we need to be breeding for this whole group of uh, variables. And and once we get all of that right, get the combination right, then we have this ideal sort of ideotype
0: of wheat. That's awesome. I think that's really fascinating. I think that's amazing. So, when you say that you bring things in from overseas, is that usually seeds that you would bring in or other sort of plant materials that you might use to get genotypes from? Yeah, so it's
1: seed ma- mainly. So, a lot of the, and it does come through a really convoluted quarantine process from mm-hmm. where we get them. So, generally, each year, depending on, on who's available, we'll have different breeders from the project. And, and I've been as well. In the past few years which has been a fantastic experience to be able to select lines from places like mexico and india and places that are really hot and so we'll bring back that that raw material and we'll either use them as a straight line or we'll cross them Mm. with some of our commercial varieties that we've got in australia so we're sort of you know bringing together the best of the best and then making sure that yeah they're going to be something that can be taken forward but yeah, the the lines that we're seeing that are really good at the moment are from Sudan, and um, yep. I'd love to go and have a look at some of those ones when they're growing in their natural habitat. But
0: That'd be um, amazing,
1: yeah. But in particular, these ones are really showing some some promise. So if we can, we we literally bring in anything that anyone will send us, and it's such mm-hmm. a, a big variety of of lines that we have. And yeah, it it just goes to show in the you know in the lines that have come through and a lot of the material has gone out to commercial breeding companies. So they're using them within their crossing programs. And so they're either going to be commercialized soon or in the next couple of years, which is really exciting to see that
0: happen. That is super exciting. New varieties are always very, very exciting. That's the agronomist in me talking. When you say <laughs> see them growing in their natural habitat, these seeds that come in, are they usually from, are they cultivated in Sudan or are they wild grown grasses?
1: They're mostly cultivated. So you, they, they do have wild types that they will will plant and we have crossed with wild types before but the the majority because they're part of a bigger program looking at at evaluating seed across those that that's what makes this project so good because mm. you are able to bring in so many different so many different areas of research and areas that are still working in different ways to really benefit the, the project so yeah that they're cultivated lines and they'll be in normal sort of Trials that you'd see, research trials, and then we'll go and select. They'll be harvested and then sent over here for us to then plant. Yeah, we have some fantastic people that are that we're working with to be able to make that happen. So yeah, very grateful to them.
0: That's awesome. Do you normally partner with a university over there, or how does that exchange normally go?
1: Yeah, so depending on on where we are, a lot of them it, they are universities, and some are commercial partners. So yeah, it just it just depends on where we're looking. But honestly. When it comes to this type of research, we want everyone to be involved because if we don't, then um, yeah, you do you lose the you lose that type of information, and you you can't you can't move things forward unless you have a really big group of people working together to be able to make things happen. So yeah, we're really grateful to all the different partners that are that are involved in this type of work.
0: That's awesome. It's so interesting. So then you get the seeds over here; they get we sow them out, we cross them. And then do we work on bulking here or does that happen once it goes to the more commercial breeders?
1: Yeah. So we'll only work with them in small amounts. If they do need to be bulked, we will. But we also, because they're going through um, certain generations each year as well. So we'll um, do what we can to make sure we've got enough seed for the commercial partners, depending on, on who wants them. But the way that we've been doing things recently has been looking at a three-tiered approach to to this type of heat tolerance. So we'll plant them out in these big trials, like I was saying, with these little baby sites across Australia and, and the big trial here in Narrabri. And then those that do really well put into these heat chambers that are able to sort of bring the glass house to the field mm-hmm. and then we'll heat them up and make sure that they're really absolutely toasty. And then once those the, those that do the best out of that will go into the glasshouse. So normally when you look at this type of research across the world, people will go from the glasshouse first to the field. Mm-hmm. And it's not a great representation of what the germplasm is doing because we sort of, we know that glasshouse trials, the way that roots work within the soil, root morphology, they really need to be in a field to be able to see, they they behave differently. They really do. So if you might miss a huge amount of really superior germplasm by planting them out in the glasshouse first so yeah being able to have the field to the glasshouse rather than the glasshouse to the field has really you know revolutionized the the way that we are looking at heat tolerance in this stuff
0: i remember looking at some of the heat chambers at an um pbi field day years ago now (laughs) look at how they are they moved around with their little air conditioners strapped on the side (laughs) And they've definitely improved in their uh, movability lately, thank goodness, because they're a pain. <laughs> I can imagine.
1: Yeah, but they I mean, they serve a purpose and they're starting to be built in other areas around Australia now, which is great. So, you know, we're always willing to give out all of the, the, the information as to how they're built and what you need to build them. So if anyone ever needs to do that, then they're more than welcome. Yeah,
0: <laughs> it's good. That's good awesome. I love collaborative breeding stories not, rather than I suppose, private and monetized yeah. reading stories, but that's probably my background in research coming through.
1: <laughs> yeah, we've all got to work together.
0: <laughs> yes, absolutely. And there's definitely a place in the, the system for everybody. All parts are are important. It really is true.
1: Yeah, everyone brings something to the table and we need to keep that very
0: open. Very much so. I think it's all very exciting and very fascinating. That. Thank you so much for giving us your time today and for this chat. It's been a really, really good talk. Hopefully, it gets everyone listening thinking about the amazing research that goes into their food. That their bread on the table doesn't uh, doesn't just appear. Actually, a lot of research goes into how to grow their bread, and talking about the challenges for farmers in our changing climate. So. Everybody, please join us for our next episode for more inspirational stories, actionable tips and unleashing the eco-warrior inside you. Until next time, thanks for listening. Please subscribe to our podcast and head over to our socials to explore a little more about us. This has been Bronwyn Brennan for Beyond the Green Line podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Green Line, brought to you by Moss Environmental. Subscribe to our podcast for your weekly invitation to join the conversation. Until next time, keep thinking green.